Um, and uh, so basically I'm going to talk about the second wave of disruption for online news uh, and I'm going to argue that we are undergoing this second digital revolution based primarily on mobile but also on social media, the, uh, the, the sort of the increasing two-way and personal nature of, of the news. Uh, you know, these are the, really the big driving, uh, driving changes. And that this is hitting an industry that is, has already been through a massive disruption to its business models through just going digital in the first place. If you like, this is digital being disrupted in its own right. And I'm going to talk about two, two, two things, really. One is just sketch out what is happening today in terms of some of those overarching trends and audience behavior. And I will reference in the process uh, data from our Reuters Institute Digital News Report, uh, 2014 uh, data, which looks at comparative um, behavior around online news. Uh, and then I'm going to talk about um, actually what news publishers and broadcasters are doing in response to this second uh, digital revolution. And uh, then we'll tie, spend time um, uh, hopefully having a conversation and, and, uh, and having questions. You've heard of this already, um, but my background as a journalist, I then spent 10 years running digital products at the BBC, so moving more into sort of engineering uh, user design products. And I now work with uh, a range of uh, media companies, so newspapers, broadcasters, on these issues of digital transition effectively. So I do that, and I also, um, uh, on the academic side, I work primarily with the Reuters Institute on the annual survey and various other issues around technology and the future of journalism. Uh, and I'm also a visiting fellow at City University looking at social media and, uh, and journalism. So um, I spent most of my journalistic career, uh, I guess, yeah, most of my journalistic career in the time before the internet. Uh, so in fact, when I started in the World Service at the BBC, uh, you still dictated your copy to typists. Um, you, uh, shortwave transmission was the only way uh, to get your messages across to the other side of what was then the Berlin Wall. Uh, there were no direct dial um, telephones to lots of parts of the world. So, you know, the notion of doing 24-hour news channels, for example, uh, in internationally, uh, it just wasn't possible because, um, because the technology wasn't there. So in my lifetime as a journalist, I've seen how technology has shaped not the values but the formats and the capability and the way in which people receive their news. So um, through all my journalistic career, massive amounts of change, uh, a real sort of explosion of choice. So um, uh, satellites, digital television, 24-hour news, radio and television. Um, uh, and then uh, we had this sort of extra leap with the, with the internet. So the internet has led to uh, an ever greater explosion of choice and, and competition. And now, with the sort of the next phase, we're seeing sort of an explosion of, of, of formats and platforms within the internet. So essentially, <clears throat> the internet has done two things. So it's, it's removed the geographic boundaries around news. Uh, and secondly, it's lowered the barriers to entry through low cost or no, no, no cost publishing. And just two examples of that. So. Uh, UK newspapers like the Daily Mail or Mail Online, uh, also the Guardian, have been able to become really significant players in the United States, for example, in the US uh, market. The Mail Online was recently reported uh, as the biggest uh, newspaper in the world. I think the Guardian uh, has now overtaken the New York Times as the biggest quality English language online newspaper in, in the world. And secondly, in terms of the low-cost publishing, 
you've seen the likes of uh, BuzzFeed, for example, 170 staff overtaking the New York Times, uh, one th over a thousand staff in, in terms of overall uh, reach. And then you've also seen models where you know individual uh, YouTubers are building audience just with one person of uh, you know millions of people and generating significant amounts of revenue. So this new sort of low-cost publishing, the the ability to distribute content pretty much for free, uh, has again really changed a, a lot of uh, the business models around the internet. And so along with economic disruption to business models, we all know the implications in the news industry, closures, uh, thousands of job losses, a move from a physical product with a secure business model to digital products where in many cases it's the aggregators like Google and Facebook, Craigslist, taking a lot of the value. But in a way, uh, a lot of these disruptions are, are already history. We're, because we're already being hit by this new wave of forces which are changing the media environment again. So these are the three uh, big disruptors which I'm going to talk about today and which I think will shape a lot of what happens over the next five years. So these are the areas where things are going to be different, where media companies or journalists need to acquire new skills uh, and behave in different ways. So a lot of this comes together in uh, this picture which uh, sums up for me how far we've come in just a very few years. So this is a picture of uh, St. Peter's Square in Rome, waiting for the inauguration of a new pope. So uh, the first one taken in 2005, second one in 2013. And so in the first picture, less than 10 years ago, we see a group of people who maybe will have heard the news in the morning on the radio or television or, or a newspaper, um, but they have no way of really keeping up to date with what's happening in real time uh, in, in that square. By contrast, in 2013, you see people who are equipped with these powerful connected devices, which not only allow them to access information in real time in the square, uh, in other words, to receive information that may come from broad traditional broadcasters or media companies, but they, they also have the power now to tell their own stories, to shape their own narratives and to uh, connect with others without the intervention of traditional media companies. And if we look at um, mobile specifically first of those big changes, uh, we've gone from a few years ago less than 5% of traffic to news sites coming from mobile devices to uh, a tipping point where in many cases over half of traffic is now coming from mobile. So we saw this first of all with specific events, so things like the, the Boston bombings. So for that particular time when, time when people were out and about, where timely information was crucial, that was the first time in a major news story that the New York Times went through that 50%. So 50% of all their traffic came from mobile phones, not from mobile phones and tablets, but from mobile phones during, during that story. Uh, for the BBC, uh, and I think uh, this week they, they reported that um, on an average day now they're through 50%. So not just for specific events, but now in general it's moved to over 50% of their traffic is coming from mobile and tablet. Uh, New, uh, BBC went through that last year uh, and is now about 55% on an average weekday coming from mobile or, or, or tablet. Uh, I'm currently working with the FT and of their mobile subscriber base, over 60% of their traffic is now coming from mobile or, or, or tablet. Uh, 
And more generally, uh, we've gone through that tipping point of uh, over 50% smartphone ownership in most countries. So more people now have a smartphone than don't have a smartphone. Um, and I think by 2020, the World Bank are reporting, are, are suggesting that 80% of the world's population will have smartphones. So a lot of the, the extra billion people or two billion people who are going to come online in that period are going to come online through smartphones, not through traditional um, PCs. So this is just the, some data from our latest Reuters digital news report, which shows that over a third are now using their phones for news each week across the 10 countries that, that we surveyed. This is just looking at a, a select sample of them. And uh, you know, in a few countries like Denmark, it's, uh, it's over 50%. So this is kind of where we're heading, is to a stage where over 50% are using the smartphones for news. Obviously, much higher percentages that don't have smartphones, uh, the, the percentages here are, are using them for news. And we've seen some countries really catching up in the last 12 months or so. So some were a little way behind, such as uh, Germany, France, and Japan, and there's been a real sort of catch up in the, in the last 12 months or so. Uh, if you look at uh, tablets, <coughs> it's a similar story. So uh, smaller numbers, much faster growth. Uh, tablets, incidentally, is a much older group. So there's a real big difference at the moment in terms of the demographics of people accessing news from smartphones, which is much younger, real under 45, over 45 split, and smartphones where the majority of usage is in the uh, 35 plus group. And the biggest growth is uh, 44 to 54. So smartphones and tablets currently being used quite differently. But in general, it's hard to <coughs> overestimate how far and how fast these devices are changing the news consumption experience. So just to, to get a little flavour of how people are consuming news through smartphones and why. So what we see in, in our research is that these devices are, uh, so it's not just about the numbers, but they're really affecting behaviour and driving different kinds of value. So um, smartphones in particular are encouraging people to access news more frequently, obviously. We see that every year in our data. We also see that the more devices you have, the more frequently you are likely to access news. So if you have a smartphone and a tablet and a, and a computer, the more addicted to news you're likely to be. Uh, we see that, um, that they're extending the access points to different points in the, in the day. Uh, so this is a quote from a young person we talked to this year, <coughs> not from the Reuters Institute. So uh, you know, in the cafe or at the bus, it, it's right there. You just have all the news at your fingertips. This sort of sense of control is what people uh, value. And then uh, we also find in our data that some of these devices are also encouraging the payment for news, which is of particular interest to media companies, obviously. People really um, have, are coming to increasingly rely on their smartphones. And uh, across all of it, we've asked this question for a number of years now, what's your main source of news? Which, which, what's your most important source uh, platform for news? And uh, now it's somewhere around 20% across all the countries, so around the, across the 10 countries that we look at. Uh, a fifth now say the mobile phone is the main way of accessing digital news. For under 45s, that rises to 30. And in some countries, it's much higher than that. So in the UK, the under 45 figure for main source of news is currently running at 37%. And we see that growing by about 5 uh, to 8 percentage points every year. So it's gone from a very low base. So mobile is increasingly, well, that will go through the 50% um, 
figure within within two years in terms of the most important way of accessing news. <coughs> uh, this is another view of the change. So this is a view of the um, of the log files of the Financial Times and what platforms people are accessing at different times. So you can see how it used to be, that's the blue line, that's the desktop. So essentially the internet was something you accessed in the middle of the day, mainly, and a little bit at the end of the day. So that was kind of the old pattern. And you can see how smartphones and tablets have completely changed and turned on its, on its head when people are accessing. So this is right now in the bullseye of where newspapers used to be consumed. This is newspaper time. That's why mobiles and tablets are far more disruptive to newspapers than desktop, which was a bit more complimentary. And it's the new digital prime time for, um, for busy executives getting up at six o'clock in the morning and, uh, and accessing. So where do you think the majority of Financial Times uh, journalistic effort goes? So if, if people want to access the news then, when, when do you think Financial Times journalists are, are writing the news? So I've been working there recently and they tend to drift in with their pink uh, paper under their arms at about 9.30 normally. And then they don't do much, they have a lot of conversations, they sort of think about what they might do and then they get a little bit more exercised around sort of 3 o'clock, start making a few calls, bash something out and they follow a story about there. <laughs> which is pretty much the, um, the low point in terms of, of, of audience interest. Uh, so what's really interesting is that charts like this, big data like this, has started to absolutely transform what, what organisations like the Financial Times do, because they recognise that the journalistic effort and the demand is completely out of kilter. So they were producing, you know, that journalistic shift pattern was made for a print age, and actually for digital age, they need to have obviously much more always on. So they've, out, they've outsourced some uh, editorial uh, resource to the Far East so they can hit these better. They've brought people in at six o'clock in the morning to, to make sure that there's really good prime uh, content. They've launched new products like Fast FT, which is aimed much more at uh, snacking behavior, as well as continuing to produce great analytical and, 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 and deep content. So you can start to see how um, Mobiles really start to change not just consumption habits, but actually how news is produced in, in the first place. It's also important to point out that the adoption of these new habits is not yet evenly distributed. So some groups are adopting far quicker than others. So this chart looks at uh, all news consumption in the UK by age. So this is again using our Reuters data. And so it's not just um, newspapers, radio, online, and TV as well. Uh, but you can see here that the idea of the addition is still very much, um, the appointment of view is still very, very strong with older, with older groups. So that's the green line. So for that group of over 45s, there's a big peak in terms of news consumption early evening. That might be a, an evening newspaper. It might be evening television news. Uh, and again, at lunchtime and, and early in the morning. But you can see for the 18 to 24s, that's the, that's the red line. Uh, it's pretty flat. So um, essentially, young people just want to, news, want, want to access news when they want to access it on demand. These are very, very, very different behaviours. And, uh, you know, some people say, well, of course, young people will grow into, uh, you know, watching, watching um, bulletins at 10 o'clock or at set times. But I personally don't believe that's ever going to happen. So for me, this is, this is absolutely, uh, this is, this is behaviour patterns that are being set down that will not change uh, back to the patterns that we used to see before as people get older. Another view of this generational split, so this is another view of it, which shows the extent to which um, 
young people are turning to internet devices. Again, it just shows this sort of young versus old split. So effectively, uh, on the left, you see that uh, this is where we ask people what their main platform for accessing news is. So television news is still the most important in every country that we look at. Television news remains still the, the best way of reaching people and the most important for people as well. So in terms of numbers, but also in terms of importance, it's still the most important, but not for younger groups. So for younger groups, online is now absolutely the default and uh, television news uh, comes number two. Uh, so you can see the, 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 the very clear generational split. And uh, what we also see is that the 25 to 34 group is also moving very fast in that direction as well, being essentially digital first with television and, and, and newspapers afterwards. Um, and the impact of smartphones and tablets on uh, television, for example, is, is set to grow as a function of the um, changing shape of these devices and their growing multimedia capabilities. So the uh, one on the left, the iPhone 6, uh, which was on sale earlier this month, and the 6 Plus, so these much larger screens. Um, uh, and, and the reason why they've got these larger screens is effectively to display um, video and also to display text in a much more readable uh, way. Um, and so these devices are going to be a really, really important way of displaying, distributing television and radio, as well as uh, what we used to think of as newspaper content. These are the TV and radio sets of the future, uh, but with far more capability. And the phones and indeed the watches, which are coming out uh, increasingly, uh, the, that's the Apple Watch, which is coming out uh, early next year, are also uh, personal. So the, the big difference between these devices they are amazing. They have amazing capabilities, but they are they're personal to you. That's that that which allows that 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 ability to have one-to-one -one relationships to serve up individual and much more relevant content in a way that you could never do with shared tablets or shared uh, PCs. That's the real that's the real issues. So that's mobile, which is a pretty big disruption on its own. So the second one um, that I want to talk about is, uh, is social. In fact, it's the combination of mobile and social that is so powerful. So with social, what we've seen over the last um, yeah, eight years or so is the emergence of these giant networks that have effectively become alternative media distribution systems. So actually David Carver's writing in the New York Times this week, wrote a great piece about uh, Facebook as, as the uh, and, and really majoring on this point about social networks as the distribution s systems. Facebook, as we know, is, is the largest of them all. So it's got um, well over a billion active users. Twitter's grown almost 50% in 12 months uh, to 230 million active. People say Facebook is uh, you know is, is days are behind it, but it's it's uh, I think this week again posted very strong growth figures, about sort of 10% up. Uh, this year, or between seven and ten percent up this year. Uh, YouTube, uh, over a billion active users. Um, they're consuming six billion hours of video every month. Again, that's up about fifty percent year on year. And at the same time, as sort of consolidation into uh, those three as sort of incredibly powerful uh, networks for news, you also see a lot of fragmentation in different directions. So you have specialist distribution networks and uh, creative networks around uh, so Vine, for example, these small little videos, thumbnails. Um, it's only been around for about 18 months, already has about 50 million users. Instagram, uh, almost 200 million. 
uh, added video in the last um, 18 months, Pinterest for pictures, Snapchat, etc., etc. And then in the last year, we've seen the emergence of uh, messaging applications like Line and WhatsApp, etc. So our um, digital news report this year came up with some, I think, some unique data. Um, so there are a lot of organizations that look at the reach of individual social networks, but in terms of looking at it specifically for news and saying where where is news, um, which networks are important for news and which networks are important in different countries, uh, I think this is pretty, pretty unique data. Uh, what it broadly shows is that Facebook is the largest um, by far, which we kind of kind of know. But then you can see that uh, YouTube is very big in general. That's the blue line, but not actually used yet that that heavily for news. So obviously YouTube is mainly used for entertainment at the moment. Although there are a whole load of players like Vice Online and others who are trying to uh, turn that into a big uh, news distribution um, network. And as video becomes more important, I would expect that line to grow a lot so that YouTube will become, as a distribution platform, far, far more important for news than it is today. And then after that, you have, um, you have Twitter, but interestingly, only just ahead of Google+. So, you know, because we're in the UK, where Twitter is one of the most popular networks, we think that Twitter's in, uh, or in the US, we think Twitter's the most popular everywhere for news, but it isn't. In other countries, it's actually Facebook that is used in a Twitter-like way, like in Turkey or in, um, uh, in Brazil. Uh, so Twitter is, uh, is maybe not as popular as you might think. And then interestingly, um, you've seen the emergence of new networks like WhatsApp. So very big in some countries, so in Spain, 60% of the, of the entire um, sample uh, access WhatsApp for some purpose, and 26% say they're accessing it for discussing, sharing, or, or commenting on the news. So, um, and, and in some countries, what you see is that Facebook is important for news, in other countries, Twitter, and actually in the, in the recent Indian elections, it was WhatsApp that was the most important and most influential network. Um, so obviously these networks are being used for, uh, for communication, between uh, for communication, for news gathering, um, but crucially they're being used by people to discover, discover news, and that's the, the sort of really big change from a sort of audience point of view. Um, and again, in our Reuters report, we see uh, social media now in some countries, this is the US, just looking at the US figures, we see uh, social media now almost as important as uh, a search for for some groups, and um, and uh, one of the interesting aspects of this is the generational difference. So the red is the 18 to 24s, and the blue is the over 45. So you can see that younger people are more than twice as likely to access news, to come to a news story digitally online through social media than through um, uh, than the old, older groups. And it's this kind of thing which has been driving the success of a lot of these social sharing sites like BuzzFeed and Upworthy and Viral Nova, particularly in the, in the US. So BuzzFeed's founder, Jonah Peretti, talks about you know, moving from, a, from, from this world where social is now going to be the new starting point. So starting with portals, that was the starting point, and then it was search with Google, and now it's going to be social. Well, I don't think that's true because you can see that actually it's a, it's a much more balanced picture. But for some brands like BuzzFeed, it is true because 75% of their traffic now comes from social media, 50% comes, comes from mobile. Um, and in terms of uh, younger people in particular, actually what 
what, what do they do when they start the day? Do they start with a news site or do they start with their, with their Facebook feed? That was something we were kind of interested to know when we talked to people. Yeah, so, so this idea that you're looking at your, what your friends are reading and that's how you basically discover things or how you decide what you read. Uh, I, I, I subscribe to a, a version of that which is an app called Nuzzle which essentially goes through my uh, Twitter feed and then says, well, what are, what are people I know recommending? And they just sends me alerts about three times a day of articles I should be reading. And it's amazing. It's completely transformed my news experience. So it's not quite like starting my day with, with Facebook, which I'm pleased to say I don't do, but, um, but I am the whole way through the day now getting social recommendations, basically, on what I should read. And they, in many cases, they're much more relevant to me than the recommendations that a newspaper editor might, might, have, uh, might have thought about. <coughs> um, so uh, it's, not just, <coughs> it's not just news, uh, it's not just text. We're seeing a lot more video being shared as well and getting some amazingly big numbers. So this was the Russell Brand interview with uh, Jeremy Paxman on Newsnight, uh, UK... Uh, current affairs program uh, so that got uh, here 9.8 million or something uh, views for that 17 minute interview any ideas how many people now watch Newsnight on an average week day it was 800,000 but of course it's been falling so it's now 600,000 is, 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 is the average <clears throat> but I think it gives a sort of sense of the how the balance is shifting to these new distribution mechanisms that you can reach mass audiences now, bigger audiences than you can reach through television for particular types of content that uh, when there's something worth watching and sharing, so not for all content obviously. Um, <clears throat> so social um, is the second big disruptor um, for discovery, um, but also because it allows anyone to create and distribute content, so that's the other reason why it's, it's, uh, it's changing things. So just a few quick examples of, of the rise of the content creators. So um, Barack Obama's tweet, four more years, when he won the election, uh, the most tweeted in history at the time, uh, was really interesting because you can see them starting to flex their digital muscles and starting to use these channels as a primary, trying to get these direct communications, not being uh, disintermediated, not, not being, you know, having the newspaper in, in the way. And... Um, <clears throat> So, and, and the process of that was they thought about that a long time in advance, they, they shot the picture, they knew what they were going to say, and they just launched it at that moment in time. And in doing that, that, that enabled them to seize the agenda. So the picture that was chosen for the front page of The Economist, the picture that was chosen for the front page of the New York Post or whatever it was, was that picture. You know, they were able to effectively um, you know, change or, or to seize the agenda so that, so that, that became uh, part of the story. Uh, and everyone's doing it. I mean, uh, the Queen obviously did it this week, uh, and, and um, Clarence House has been. You know, the, the baby was announced um, through uh, through through Twitter. Um, you have uh, ISIS obviously using social media to try and get their message to to reach people directly, uh, and to not have their message uh, filtered through traditional uh, media. And then, uh, you know, slightly earlier example, Coney 2012, another amazing example of millions and millions of people uh, accessing long-form video content in that particular case, engaging with it in a way that they wouldn't have done if there'd been a documentary about Central Africa on traditional traditional media. So this is this is very powerful and it's changing in, in very very real ways. Uh, other content creators. Um, so this is the barriers to production that I talked about earlier came down with blogging. <coughs> 
<clears throat> but now we're starting to see this with video production. So this is a journalist, Tim Pool, who uh, showed what's possible last year in Turkey um, during the disturbances there with Google Glass. So he was effectively reporting, uh, he was like a live 24-hour news channel. At various stages, he was live streaming from his Google Glass headset, and at one stage he had 750,000 uh, people in a day accessing his, his live stream. It's a bit like the Truman Show, if you remember that. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, so that's a, another example of it. Um, and we'll start to see this in television documentaries. So. Um, Google Glass documentaries, I think this is one of the first Google Glass uh, documentaries in the world. It was a story about the Hasidic and West Indian communities in the district of New York. And you just get kind of different different camera angles, different ways. Uh, you've seen a lot of drone, drone coverage now as well. Um, so technology uh, also affecting the angles that people see uh, stories through. And then the third disruptor <coughs> is, uh, is visual. Uh, so I'm not saying video, I'm saying visual. So until recently, the internet was essentially about words and pictures, and that was largely because of the constraints of bandwidth and technology and processing and standards, because there were no common standards for, for multimedia, for video. And essentially, in the last two, two years, that's changed because of the new standards of the web, which are built for multimedia, and the new uh, bigger bandwidth, even on mobile phones, that you're getting on 4G, for example, you're getting high definition enough bandwidth to do high definition television on 4G phones. So a lot of those constraints uh, are still here to an extent, but over the next five years will we'll drop away, and that opens up a completely different world. Um, so we're getting used to uh, consuming content more visually, uh, navigating more, more visually, like the interfaces on the, on the smartphone on the left. Uh, we're getting used to seeing our own personal data displayed visually through, through sort of fitness apps, uh, we're, see, we're getting used to uh, not reading a book, uh, but maybe a 10-minute TED, TED talk on video is enough on a mobile phone while I'm at a bus stop or on a train. Um, the one on the right is uh, Hans Rosling's amazing visualisation of population and mortality, which is uh, available on YouTube and is absolutely fantastic if you haven't seen it. Um, and again, it's the, same, it's the same sort of more visual. It partly speaks to the attention economy. It's how you can tell complex stories uh, in, a, in a compressed time scale, as people have less attention, but still have the same desire to, um, to learn about the world. So, uh, so those are kind of three core disruptions, social, mobile, and visual. But what does it all add up to? And um, I think uh, one of the most important implications is this, this battle for attention. So I think this picture kind of sums it up, really. There was another picture I had of, of people sat in the 1950s around, um, as a family around, around the television. You've probably seen it. This is the updated version, which is slightly more fra fragmented and distracted, I guess you could say. Um, so it is harder and harder, if anyone who's a family knows, you know, to get everyone to, 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 to share an experience in, in the home and, and also to watch something serious. And even if they are watching something serious, they probably won't concentrate on it in the way that they used to. So Ofcom tell us that 49% of us, when we're watching uh, television, are actually doing something else. And mainly, that's not doing the interactive game that goes along with the, um, with the television program. It's mostly something else. It's mostly checking your Facebook feed and, and, and looking, looking at emails. So the amount of time is growing all the time. Uh, the amount of time we consume media is growing, but the amount of attention we have stays the same. And so that is having a big impact on you know, the extent to which people will sit down and watch a 40-minute um, 
edition of Newsnight or a television documentary, for example. So a significant number, um, uh, yeah, I, th I, I think this book by Douglas uh, Rushkoff really uh, captures a lot of, many, many of us have growing unease about some of these, these, these trends. He argues we're kind of living in an always-on world where the priorities of the moment are distorting our long-term judgment. And he bemoans in particular the, last, the, the sort of loss of narrative storytelling, which he suggests is being replaced by this stream of always-on content. And uh, we're, we're being crowded out by the insistent reminder of the smartphone and, 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 and social media, you know, that, that constantly pulling us back to, to what's happening now. So what does all this add up to? Implications for publishers and journalists. So I think firstly, um, social mobile world where the mobile and tablet will become the primary way people consume the content you put out. It requires a big shift in what you produce and how you then hook that content into the networks. Secondly, uh, distinctiveness and added value in content and experience becomes increasingly important in a market where information is everywhere. In many cases, it's free. So to get people's attention, uh, you really need to produce something that, so it's knowing your market, it's increasingly thinking about the niche, and it's definitely not doing what everyone else is doing, which is how traditional news organizations used to work. It was basically aggregating a whole package. This is, this is more about disaggregating that package. Thirdly, digital is no longer about words and pictures in some case. Um, it's becoming a much more visual medium. And that requires for many newspapers, certainly, much more focus on new skills, of new visual skills, uh, not just video, but visualizations. And finally, the availability of data. Uh, so I think these are the ingredients for success. I'm just briefly going to go through um, a, a couple of examples of that. So firstly, uh, optimizing for social and mobile. So uh, here are three examples of companies that made significant strides in the last uh, year or so. So uh, the first one is Us Versus Them. This is actually Trinity Mirror, which is a traditional publisher in the UK. And they have been launching a number of social and mobile um, experiments in content. Uh, this one's about, uh, it's sometimes called the, the British answer to BuzzFeed. Uh, in, from a standing start, it's gone, from, it's gone to 7 million unique users a month. So that has overtaken most of the national newspaper titles that it owns, like uh, the People, for example. So it, it's done it with three people, and it's got to, to, to more users. Um, and, the, and the way they've done it is to, uh, as they say here, to try and re reverse engineering the magic of, of how the internet works and how things go viral, essentially. What kind, so start with the content that people want to share and produce that. And essentially, that's how they've gone from zero to seven million users, users a month. They're not making any money, by the way. That's a whole separate question. But the idea is that you can do that without dumbing down. That's also the point. So Trinity Mirror is a, um, you know, is a, is a, uh, a tabloid newspaper, but with, um, uh, with social values. And it's, um, it's, uh, it's trying to reinterpret those. So things like house prices, the disparity between um, people who have, very, uh, you know, have lots of money and can spend lots of money on rich houses and then, and then the, the, the disparity in the north and the south. So they kind of bring that out in a game where you actually explore the data and you understand and you learn more through, through the process, has more impact through the process of doing it. And that is a social bit of, of content that then people want to, to share and, and tweet the score and, and all the rest of it. So it's a different way of thinking, but it's all rooted in, in the values of, of, of the mirror. The second example is Quartz. So this is an old publisher called uh, Atlantic Monthly, 
and they essentially again set a startup um, to rethink uh, financial journalism from a mobile and tablet space essentially for a mobile and social space so rethinking what that could be creating experiences that people wanted on the move thinking about how the content the tone would need to change and you can see again that, that they've overtaken the FT uh, this was you know probably eight months ago but in terms of reach they overtaken the FT and the um, and the economist obviously those are subscriber uh, models and this is a free model so maybe not surprising with quality financial content but, but really, uh, really interesting. And as Kevin Delaney, who's the editor-in-chief, talked about, you know, this is about the way they've done it is by not expecting people to come to their site. You know, this, this thing about, actually, well, you must come to our destination, you must come to our place. This is about taking the content and allowing it freely to go into the spaces where people want to be. So on their mobile phones, mobile notifications, social media, etc., and making it really frictionless to, to do that. Third example is uh, another startup called Nowless News, which is essentially saying, okay, the world is going mobile and social and visual, so let's create a product for that, which is, which is essentially very short videos. So the videos are somewhere between 30 seconds and six seconds, depending on whether they're produced for Vine or for Instagram or for their own website. Uh, they produce 35 a day. Uh, they distribute them across Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Vine and they tailor them to each platform so that they're absolutely right for, for, for that particular audience. The BBC has done uh, has actually been very successful with its 15 second video service which goes out on Instagram, is it 15 or 30 second? I can't remember, it's called um, Instafax or something. Um, and they've been experimenting over the last year with what kind of works and is still quality content within uh, 15 or 30 seconds or, or whatever they're doing. It's worth checking it out if you, ha if you haven't seen it. And a lot of other people are, are, are looking at, at, at that. Um, the second content trend is the move to distinctive content. So uh, it could be something like the short form game I showed you, or it could be something uh, longer form. But just going back briefly to courts. So courts um, talk about this curve of effectiveness in the internet age, which shows where you get the most value and it's also where they put most of their resources. So we've already talked about this bit on the right, which is the mobile stuff, so short, snappy, topical. So they do a lot of that uh, for mobile, but they also do quite a lot on the left, which is the distinctive stuff. So it's the longer and more distinctive stuff. And uh, you know, as Kevin Delaney says, the place you don't want to be in, in, is in the middle, which is where most publishers actually are, uh, which is in the uh, 500, 800 words, doing everything that everyone else is doing. Uh, this is some research by Newswhip, which is an aggregator of uh, how brands are doing in the social space. And it basically says what uh, it's looking at the most shared articles in Facebook by mainstream news organisations. And I think what we see is it's actually not about just the short form stuff out of this, is that, that the organisations that actually do really well in terms of social recommendations are really good quality long form stuff as well. So. A lot of this comes from you know, New York Times um, with very long articles there, over 2,000 words, uh, Guardian, BBC. Uh, so there's some really good quality stuff being shared as well. Um, and one of the really interesting developments in the last year has been the... the um, so I think the, the short form has been super served, if you like, by platforms like Twitter. And what we're now seeing is some of those very, very clever Silicon Valley people starting to think about how you would apply their amazing product thinking to long form. So Ed Williams, who started Twitter, 
uh, started about 18 months, two years ago, uh, Medium, and you've probably seen a lot of Medium articles or been sent them by email or social media. Uh, so that's all built on this platform, which is designed, which is, as he says, a new place on the internet where, where people share ideas and stories that are longer than 140 characters and not just for friends. So it's trying to create that reading experience. Um, and it's not designed for the PC, it's designed for the multi-platform world. Uh, big pictures, responsive content, focus on simplicity and readability. It tells you how long it's going to take you to read the article, so really nice um, <laughs> touches. Uh, so you know whether to save it for later or read it now, etc. Um, and so platforms like this are going to be a big part of the future, uh, very important. And the third big trend is the continued move away from text towards video, so there's partly driven by technology, the new web standards I talked about earlier, HTML5, capabilities of mobile phones, um, but also by um, digital videos increasing flexibility, so you can do more things within it in terms of advertising, and it's also um, one place where digital advertising still carries a premium, so publishers are really interested in it because there's money to be made as opposed to digital dimes. And uh, so, for example, the New York Times has added 20 new staff working on video in the last 18 months, working on new formats, long-form documentaries, etc. Uh, they've also moved, interestingly, this content outside the paywall because they get more money from advertising than they do by locking it up within a limited audience in, in the paywall. So that's a kind of interesting development. Um, and other publishers are doing the same. Um, so this is because, you know, beautifully produced multimedia documentaries like Firestorm is much harder to replicate. It's much more distinctive. It's this, this move to distinctive content. Uh, this is one I saw the other, the other day, which I really, really, really liked. Um, so this is um, Wall Street Journal. It's a kind of web documentary about Alibaba, IPO, and Jack Ma. And it's really, um, it's really compelling. It sort of kept me clicking. It's got a lot of data in there. It's immersive content. I probably spent about five to 10 minutes exploring lots of different aspects of the story. So, you know, watching a little short video, playing with some of the um, interactive features that were on there as well. And uh, we're going to see a lot more of this kind of thing. And they're produced by, you know, technologists and journalists and designers uh, working much more closely together. So these little units within newsrooms working uh, in, in different ways. But really, really uh, useful stuff, you know, little snippets of news uh, with great navigation and it's also telling you a lot about the story. So complex stories beautifully told. And then the final, um, the final aspect of this uh, is actually around, around data. So just as, as what's happened to video is that the tools that were available for video to start to make it really easy to create and publish. So on your mobile phone or through YouTube, it's really easy now to create and edit videos. Now we're starting to see the same thing with, with, with data. So tools that help us um, turn that data into something that's uh, journalistically great, but also tells a great story. Uh, so Data Wrapper is just one uh, free, easy to use tool which creates charts for any device. Uh, high charts is sort of similar, the commercial tools like Tableau, just makes it much, much easier within newsrooms <coughs> to tell complex stories in ways that don't mean you have to write 2,000 words. 
Um, and then uh, this is important because there's obviously this growing availability of data as well. So um, public data, user data, and uh, so we're seeing this democratization in, 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 in turning that data and the tools are available. Um, so a couple of examples. Uh, so now in newsrooms, uh, journalists, for example, at Helsingen and Sanomat, they are able to you know, have various tools to do a, a quick timeline, for example, like the one on the left about Nokia, um, and they're increasingly able to build those tools and do all those things themselves. Trinity Mirror, who I mentioned earlier, have a data journalism blog effectively called Ampt, another of their little experiments. They're using open tools like Data Wrapper here, for example, to visualize things. Looks really good, very easy and quick to do, and, uh, and again, is very, very powerful. <clears throat> their mission is to make journalism more accessible through visualizations and infographics. And then finally, this is kind of more important for the business side, data is not just transforming content, it's, it's transforming the way newsrooms work. So tools like um, The Guardian's in-house developed OFAN tool, the one on the left here, provides journalists with instant feedback and reaction to how people are um, consuming the content so they can then do something about it. Um, and Chartbeat has kind of revolutionized behavior in a lot of newsrooms. So it's giving them instant feedback on who's reading which bit of your story, where people are dropping off in your story, where they're losing interest. And that helps people uh, really think about how long that story should be or whether they should put a visualization in it or whatever. It's starting to really change behavior. They're rolling out Chartbeat in a lot of uh, newsrooms. So finally, <coughs> um, summary. Uh, so it's quite complex. Um, but essentially, the future is not really about mobile. Uh, the future is about digital and multi-platform and how your content plays out in this increasingly complex multi-ecosystem. Um, uh, um, the changing drivers, absolutely mobile, and the different characteristics that mobile brings, uh, social media and visual, so those are the three disruptive forces in media. Um, we need to adapt, we need to change. So these are not sort of incremental changes. These require journalists to behave differently, to produce different kinds of content, particularly different kinds of formats and tones of voice. And it requires journalists to engage with uh, their audiences in a, a different way. And despite all of that change, there's a whole load of things that shouldn't change, this shouldn't change. And that is the, the values, the distinctive and unique content that is associated with your brand. To be successful, you have to hang on to those things and value them and treasure them.